I want you to, first of all, imagine that it's AD 367, and uh, the Bishop of Alexandria, who was called Athanasius, has sat down to write a letter. And it was an important letter, because what he wanted to do was to tell his congregation what the date of Easter was going to be. Um, Google wasn't so good back then. Uh, you know, your internet connection was probably a little spotty. You didn't have signal very often. I mean, it's much like being here, really. Uh, and so Bishop Athanasius needed to sit down and needed to say when Easter was going to be. And it was his 39th letter like this. He'd been doing this for a while. So he wanted to make this one interesting for everybody. Didn't just want to put the date of Easter in. So what Bishop Athanasius decided to do was to put down the 27 books of the New Testament. And he wrote them down for everybody. And that is the very first written record that we have of all of those 27 books of the New Testament being collected together in one place. And that's given ammunition to people who would like to say that the canon of the New Testament was a progressive thing that didn't really form or coalesce until roughly the 4th century AD and that somewhere between 300 and 400 AD some people sat down and said you know we really need to get this in order uh, so they said right here we go we'll start with the Gospels and we'll work our way through and they came up with these 27 books and it causes scholars to sort of point to that and say that's how that happened And that really, the canon of the New Testament is what scholars would call extrinsically formed. So that it took something from outside to say, here are those 27 books. And what we're going to show tonight, what we're going to think about for a little bit, is that that's not the case. That that's not how this happened. That the Bible... The New Testament shows us how it was formed and gives us a model for understanding how it came to be. And if we just consider and look at that, we will, be, we will understand that we don't really need to concern ourselves with what some misguided critics of the Bible would like to infer from the histories of an apostate and a false religion and it's important that we're confident about this isn't it really because this is absolutely the foundation of what we believe that if people question the word of god then as christadelphians we're not really left with much there, there isn't very much left that underpins what we believe and and how we would live our lives if we are questioning Sort of what the text is and what the Bible says. Ever since the early part of the second century AD, people have been attacking the Word of God and the New Testament in particular. There was a heretic called Marcion who came along and he said, Well, I don't really like certain bits of this, so I'm going to cut them out and I will create my own and I'll have my own Bible. Because there are some bits of the New Testament that don't say nice things about God, so I'm going to get rid of them. And there are some things that tell me that I've got to live in a certain way, and I don't particularly like that. And so he got rid of them as well. And you were left with a, you know, 
a fairly small chunk of the New Testament that was left. Martin Luther didn't like parts of the New Testament, really. Wasn't a big fan of the book of James at all. Uh, so would very much have preferred if the book of James wasn't part of it. And so he, said he tended to sort of minimise that. So we won't worry about James. He talks a lot about works. I'm not really about works. I'm more about faith. Um, the Bible is under attack and has been for a long time. But what we want to do is to confirm our faith in the writing of the Almighty by showing the care that the Almighty took over the formation of His Word. It is His Word and His revelation of Himself that we consider when we look at the Bible. I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. And because we're talking about the New Testament, we're going to start in Genesis. So I want you to come to Genesis in chapter 14, please. Genesis chapter 14 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 14 and verse 1 says that it came to pass in the days of Amraphel king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of the nations, that these made war with Berah king of Sod, etc. So it introduces us to a number of kings, and it tells us their name and where they were the king of. Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch was king of Elisar. Now turn over, or not, and have a look at verse 18, where we are introduced to Melchizedek, king of Salem. And we can read over that, because that's exactly the same formulation as you've got at the beginning, isn't it? Name, king of city. It's the regular introduction, it seems, for the kings. But compare that with Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 says, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of of peace. And so what we understand from Hebrews chapter 7 is that the order in which Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes back in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18 is vital. That it has to be that way round. Because built from that is the biblical principle that there must be righteousness before there's peace. And, you know, that's a biblical principle that comes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, doesn't it? The end of Isaiah chapter 57 says there's no peace for the wicked. James talks about the wisdom which is from above, which is first righteous, then peaceable, easy to be entreated. But the way in which Melchizedek is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 14 is absolutely crucial to underpinning this particular Bible principle and is drawn on in Hebrews chapter 7 to say, look, first it says Melchizedek, then it says he's king of Salem. And brothers and sisters, that is the care with which God 
has written his word. That he has taken words and placed them individually in the right place. So that 2,000 years later, the Spirit can point back to Genesis and say, and look what's happening here. We have Melchizedek, who's king of Salem. And that teaches us something. It's the same, brothers and sisters, with the argument in Galatians, isn't it? About He said, not seeds as of many, but as of one. And that seed is Christ. That if God hadn't taken care to make sure that Genesis in the promises were talking about a singular seed, that argument can't be made. God has placed his word perfectly in order so that we can learn from it and be instructed by it. And it is an awe-inspiring thing, brothers and sisters, to think about the way in which God has caused his word to be put down so that it perfectly encapsulates his purpose. Come with me please to Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God is building a habitation for himself, and he is doing it through the medium of his word and his revelation interesting it says doesn't it that we are built in verse 20 upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the prophets there aren't the old testament prophets but they are new testament prophets that that's who is being spoken of the context demands that that's the case if you have a look at verse 5 for instance of chapter 3 it says that the mystery of christ uh, the end of verse 4 which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That must be prophets who are operating at that time. And so the apostles and prophets that we've got up there in chapter 2 and verse 20 are equivalent then to these apostles and prophets in chapter 3 verse 5 and they're the apostles and prophets that were working then. And so what we're being told is that there were members of the early ecclesias who were endowed with the Spirit to reveal the word and the will of God and his Son. That they were the, the prophets of New Testament times who were placed within the ecclesias to speak forth the word of God. It was a Holy Spirit gift that there would be prophets, wasn't it? Just come back to First of Corinthians and chapter 12. <clears throat> First of Corinthians chapter 12 speaking of the spirit gifts 
says in verse 28, that God hath set some in the ecclesia, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, etc. So in this list of spirit gifts, apostles come first, and then there are the prophets. In terms of the hierarchy of the gifts, brothers and sisters, prophecy came right at the top because it was the means by which God would establish and found his ecclesia and reveal himself to the new believers in Christ. Just see the way this is acknowledged. Have a look at Matthew in chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, Simon Peter answers and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And the point, brothers and sisters, is not that it was the man, but it was the declaration. It wasn't Peter upon whom the ecclesia was going to be built, but the revelation of Christ revealed to Peter by the Father. And this was how God was going to make himself known to the first century ecclesias by revealing himself through the prophet. And we tend to imagine, don't we, because it, it, in, in some ways it, it's the way that it happens now, that preaching was the apostles who just sort of went out and, and they talked about what they'd seen and they'd learnt of Christ and then and they would try to sort of convert people by, by explaining what they had seen and what had happened and what they knew from what Christ had revealed to them. And this isn't the case, is it? Come to John and have a look at John chapter 14. It wasn't just that they took it in their heads to, to sort of arrive at a certain place and then start talking about <coughs> Jesus. John chapter 14 and verse 26 says, well verse 25 says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And that same idea carries on throughout the rest of, of these chapters in John, John 14, 15 and 16, all mention this work of the Comforter. Verse 26 of John chapter 15 says, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness. So they were going to be the ones who were witnesses of Christ, but they were going to do it under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. They were going to be sent and speak the words which they were given by the Spirit. It wasn't going to be their words that they were preaching. The words of preaching, the words of bearing witness, would be guided by the Spirit. And in many ways, the apostles weren't in control of them. Come and have a look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16 says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. The point that's being made is, Paul could not but preach. The Spirit drove him. There was necessity on him. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So the Spirit even informed the way in which the Apostle Paul went about his preaching. It made sure that that preaching was appropriate for the audience to which Paul was speaking. It enabled Paul to be the perfect messenger of the gospel of Christ. To whomever he came to, he was made all things to all men. And so we can see the way that God took control of the way in which he was revealed in the New Testament in the first century. That it wasn't just left to a, a direction from Christ to say you now need to go and you need to preach to every creature. But that these apostles were driven by the Spirit to go and to preach. And the Spirit ensured that the words that they used were the appropriate and the correct words and that they were right for the audience to whom they were speaking. But it doesn't end there. Speaking is an impermanent way of passing on a message, isn't it? There was no video recording back in AD, whatever this was, 45, 50, 55, somewhere around then. You couldn't just take a recording on your mobile so that you could have those words later on. So there needed to be something more. I want to come back to Deuteronomy and have a look at Deuteronomy in chapter 31 because we're given a model for the way in which this permanent record would work. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and have a look at verse 9. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9 says that Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and unto all the elders of Israel. And if you have a look down at verse 26, there was a commandment to, to what to do with this law. Verse 26 says that you take this book of the law, you put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be therefore a witness against thee. So, Deuteronomy, we know, was a spoken word, wasn't it? God gave the words to Moses, and Moses spoke them out to the people. And having done that, Moses then writes down this law. Deuteronomy 31 verse 9. 
And having done that, this book of the law then was placed by the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God so that it might be a witness. And I'm going to suggest to you that this acts as a model then for the formation of the New Testament. Because what's happening? Deuteronomy is a spoken revelation. This was then written down. It was delivered to the priests. And it was placed by the side of the ark. Come with me to 1st of Corinthians and chapter 15. 1st of Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered unto you. It's the language of Deuteronomy chapter 31. First of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So, the Apostle Paul received the words. They were then delivered to the Corinthians. Just as Moses received Deuteronomy and then wrote that down and delivered it to the the Levites um, back in Deuteronomy 31. And where was the scroll of the law? Placed beside the ark. And the ark, brothers and sisters, we know, don't we, stands as type 4, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so where was the word of God placed once it had been received and delivered? Well, it was placed in the body of Christ, wasn't it? Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Have a look at verse 23. For, says the Apostle Paul, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Paul received and then delivered to the Corinthians. And it's all based on that model that was shown back in Deuteronomy in chapter 31. It's all speaking about the inspired writing which the Apostle Paul was given to write down and then was delivered to the ecclesias. The Apostle Paul claims no original thought. He never says, this is what I think. These letters were not his own. Come back to Romans chapter 2. Because Romans chapter 2 and uh, verse 16 can be sort of put up against this claim that I've just made. It says in Romans 2 and verse 16, uh, and we're going to bash straight through the context, but it says in verse 16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according, it says, to my gospel. And you can point to that and you can say, well look, the Apostle Paul is saying it's his. That it is his gospel. And you get the same thing right at the end of Romans. If you have a look at Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, you see the same thing being said. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to, says the Apostle Paul, my gospel. And again, you can, you can point to that and you can say, well, isn't that exactly what you just said the Apostle Paul never does? 
Well, just come with me to Second of Timothy in chapter two. Because in Second Timothy chapter two, it says in verse eight, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So there we have it again. Verse 9 says, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that even when he refers to it as his gospel, it is always the word of God. Paul's gospel was what was given to him. It was never his own words. And that is the model that the New Testament presents to us for how it came about. That apostles and prophets spoke according to the words given to them by God. These were then written down. They received them of God. And then they delivered them to the ecclesias. In parallel to what we read in Deuteronomy. And we can now look at what we had read at the beginning of Luke chapter 1. And see how that fits into this model. Because Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that there were many who took in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. So there was a proliferation of writings about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, about what Jesus had come to do, about the things that were believed by the believers in Jesus and it says in verse 2 even as they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word now that is a really key phrase for us to understand the idea of the minister of the word the word for minister just means an attendant someone who attended on the word I want you to come keep something in Luke 1 we'll come back there but come forward a few pages to chapter 4 and have a look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 20 it's the same word that's used here Luke chapter 4 and verse 20 says that he closed the book Jesus closed the book and he gave it again to the minister or to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So the minister of the word was the one who was responsible then for the oral teaching. So the book was presented to Jesus. Jesus read from the book and then gave the book back to the minister of the word. The one who was responsible for this teaching. And now come forward to Acts chapter 13. That was a, a synagogue example. Just come forward to Acts 13. Have a look at verse 5. <clears> 
So Acts chapter 13, in verse 4, they're sent forth by the Holy Spirit, and that's important for us, isn't it, to recognize that they went forth, and the places that they went to were chosen by the Holy Spirit. Their itinerary wasn't their own. So they were sent forth by the Holy Spirit, and they departed to Seleucia. From thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister, or as their attendant. It's the same word as you get back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 2. And so what it seems to be suggesting is that the gospel was preached by Paul and by Barnabas, that they were there on that first missionary journey. And they had John with them to then help with the memorization of the gospel that had been preached. So Mark was there as the minister of the word. The one who was there to ensure that that word was then faithfully remembered by those who had heard it. Remember again, I mean there is there's some historical evidence that, that people had what we would refer to today as notebooks. But generally, in the Greco-Roman period that we've got here depicted for us in Acts chapter 13... The majority of you, the vast majority of your audience can't read. Actually writing stuff down and putting it in front of them isn't as of much use. Because couldn't read what was there. Literacy was probably somewhere between 10 and 20%. Somewhere in that region. And so what you would have is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas who were going round and they were preaching the word. And then you would have Mark who would be with them, who would be there to aid the memorization of what had been said. Because you didn't want to get this wrong. God had revealed his word through the apostles and the prophets. And now it was up to Mark to ensure that the people remembered that. And that that word then wasn't changed and wasn't altered. And so that's the work then, back in Luke chapter 1 verse 2, of the minister's of the word. They were there to ensure that what was being taught was a faithful or had been faithfully recollected from the words of God that had been revealed to the apostles and the prophets. And so verse 4 then, back in Luke chapter 1, well, verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And the Revised Version Margin and the Rotherham translates that as, which thou wast taught by word of mouth. That word for instructed, it's, it's the word that has come down today uh, to us that's used for the idea of the catechism the thing that you learn by rote it is spoken to you and you repeat it back and you learn it as it's this sort of question and answer you ask a question i repeat the answer that that you have taught me that is the instruction that's going on here it's an oral instruction and theophilus has been through this process so the apostles or the prophets have obviously been to him and they have spoken the word of God to him and then he has gone over that with the minister of the word who has ensured that that has been remembered correctly. 
So the picture we have of the building of the early ecclesia is of prophets who fanned out, driven by the Spirit, inspired to preach the word, which was then memorized by the new members of the faith, led by the ministers of the word. That's the, the picture that the New Testament gives to us of how this went out. But we said, didn't we, there is an impermanence to that. Memories fail. The apostles die. The revelation of the word of God can't just be by word of mouth. A more permanent record was needed. And so Luke says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And we can look at that and we can say, well, hang on. That doesn't fit, does it? Because what you've got here is Luke saying, I decided I was just going to sit down and write what I knew. Because I'd known it since the very beginning, so I would just write it down. And in one way, that, that doesn't match with... God has taken great care to ensure that the words which spread throughout the first century ecclesias were his words. And now Luke's saying that he's going to write what he remembers. That's not what's happening here. That word, from the very first, having understanding of all things from the very first, is a Greek word which means from above. I want you to come backwards a little bit to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51. That's Matthew 26, that's why that doesn't make sense. Matthew 27 and verse 51 tells us that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent that word from the top there is the same word as Luke uses from the very first and we have the picture don't we of the the, the rending of the veil in the temple that it's pulled from top to bottom and the split comes down like that and what Luke is saying what Luke is being inspired to write is that he was inspired to write this down. That he had this knowledge from above. That they weren't his words. And Luke is being made to put that in. Telling us that he was inspired to write it down. Why would God take less care over the permanent written record than the impermanent oral preaching? And the answer is, well, he didn't. And we know, brothers and sisters, that Luke can't have just sat down and written these things down based on what he remembered happened. Do you remember what the Gospel of Luke says about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. There was no one there 
when that happened. Jesus was apart from three disciples who had all gone to sleep. There was no one there to even whisper in Luke's ear that that's what had happened. The Gospel of Luke, as with the whole of the New Testament, as with the whole of the Bible, was given to Luke by God. Because he had understanding of things from above. And for us, brothers and sisters, to accept the guidance and the instruction of the Scriptures, we must accept this point, mustn't we? That these things have come from God. Holy men of God spoke as they were driven by the Holy Spirit. They weren't in control of those things. They spoke the words. They wrote the words down that they were given. They weren't their own. And that leads us to a number of different conclusions. Um, and you will almost certainly have been delighted to have heard the, heard the word conclusion. And we're getting there, I, I promise. Um, but one of the fundamental ones is that we need to be very careful. Because one of the things that, that, that we like to do when we're studying the Word of God is to read the writings of James or Peter or Paul or Matthew, Mark or Luke or John or one of the prophets, Amos, Hosea, Joel. And then ascribe to these people certain characteristics based upon the things that we read. So we read something in the Gospel of Luke and we say, well, that means that Luke was like that. And I don't know if it can't mean that Luke was like that, brothers and sisters, but it doesn't definitely. Because these weren't the words of Luke. It's not. Luke, who has decided to sit down and put these things down in this order. It wasn't whoever wrote those early chapters of Genesis who decided to put down that he was Melchizedek, king of Salem, and not describe him as the king of Salem called Melchizedek. It was God that decided that. And it is God who has ensured that his word is the perfect record and revelation of him. And this is how the inspiration of the word of God has to have happened for us to be confident that it is the word of God. Because if it didn't happen in this way brothers and sisters then we can start to question well is this just here because that's what Peter thought. Is this just here because this is what it was like. Now, we were going to have um, a section about when all this happened. It, one of the really interesting things that you can do is to go through the letters and have a look at the various historical sort of coincidences that there are with the book of Acts. And you can then start to place those letters in that place. So, we're going to do it with just one. We're going to have a look at First of Thessalonians. Have a look at First of Thessalonians chapter 3, please. Because the thing is, there obviously aren't any dates in the text. Um, we can't just go through and read at the top of all of these letters the date, like we would put the date today. But, 
Have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, where we are told that wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. And if you have a look at verse 6, it says, Now when Timotheus came from you to us and brought us good tidings of your faith and love, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. So, what we are told is that Timothy went to uh, Thessalonica to ensure that the Thessalonican ecclesia were still holding fast in the faith. Thessalonica had... um, a number of issues, didn't it? There were a number of problems in Thessalonica when the Apostle Paul went to preach there. And so Paul, having gone down to Athens, sends Timothy back and tells him to stay there, whilst Paul then goes on to Athens and then goes on to Corinth. And if we were to go back into Acts chapter 17 and 18, we would see that that happened. That that's where that happened. And so therefore... This is where 1st of Thessalonians is being written, sometime between AD 50 and AD 52, probably, is where these things were. were. And again, if you ever hear anybody tell you about any date that is an ancient date, and tell you categorically that it must have been this date, look slightly askance at them. Um, Because, you know, dating ancient things is not simple uh, and there are shifting sands there but if we say that this was sometime between AD 50 and AD 52 we would be pretty confident to be able to put that there and that then makes 1st of Thessalonians chapter 5 very interesting for us because if 1st of Thessalonians was written sometime between AD 50 and AD 52 inspired by God First of Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. And those are stirring words, brothers and sisters, and they should exhort us, because they come from God. But when you compare those words with Luke chapter 21, come back to Luke 21, have a look at verse 34. Luke 21 verse 34 says, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unaware." And you can see the way that 1st of Thessalonians chapter 5 picks up this language from Luke chapter 21. 
There are links there to sudden destruction, links to drunkenness, links to escaping. All there in the Gospel of Luke. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody in Thessalonica unless they have access to a written record of what Jesus said. Unless, in fact, they have access to a written record of the Gospel of Luke. And what we can say, therefore, is that by the time that First Thessalonians was written, somewhere between AD 50 to AD 52, the Gospel of Luke was written. And so we can see that the New Testament was being formed very early. That it was growing and building as the ecclesia grew and built. In fact, we are told this specifically. We're going to finish by just looking quickly at this. Have a look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 then, very early on in the history of the early ecclesia, And what we are told, just if we go straight into verse 7, is that the word of God increased. That word increased just means to get bigger. When it says the word of God increased, it just means it got bigger, or it was augmented, or something was added to it which increased its size. And so what we're being told is, That the word of God was being written down. And that this was growing. We get exactly the same thing in chapter 12. Have a look at Acts chapter 12 and look at verse 24. And it's interesting that this is placed in direct contrast with the death uh, of Herod. The way in which he died, he was eaten of worms. But, says verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. And we can take that very literally, brothers and sisters, to be telling us that this book that we have in front of us was being added to at this time. Finally, come to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. And again... The context is significant here because it is in direct contrast to what's gone on just before in Acts chapter 19 where in verse 19 we're told that many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. So there was a burning of the books and verse 20 mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So there is this contrast being put then between these books of the world, books of the curious arts, which were being burned, which were being destroyed, which were shrinking, and the book of the word of God, which was growing and being added to at this time. The New Testament, brothers and sisters, was written by men who were inspired by God. We have seen the care with which God has placed the words which he uses. 
to ensure that his message is preserved and taught and his principles are understood by his believers. And we have seen, brothers and sisters, the way in which the New Testament itself shows us that this was happening from the very beginnings of the early Ecclesia. And that this written record was being grown and built to ensure that the Ecclesia might grow and be established and <coughs> confirmed. Brothers and sisters, today, the word that we have in front of us is still the word of God. That, that there, are, that there is more that we could say and particularly about sort of particular parts of the New Testament. We could talk about the end of Mark, we could talk about the beginning of John 8, these various passages with which people question exactly whether they are supposed to be part of the text or not. And what we would say to that is, we have seen how careful God is with his word. And the way in which God has caused it to be formed. Let us not doubt, brothers and sisters, that God has ensured that this word that we have in front of us is his word. And that the care with which he has put that word together is the care with which we need to be considering it and studying it and striving to live our lives by it. Thank you very much. Let's just remind ourselves, shall we, of that very fundamental verse. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good work. God's word has a purpose and that purpose lies now in us, thankfully, by the grace of God. Thank you again, Brother Matt, for the, for the work that you've done for us today.